Father, we thank you um, for the blessing and the privilege of being able to join together as the body of Christ. We thank you that we have uh, these privileges purchased for us by the blood of Christ. We thank you that we have every uh, reason to, to worship you and praise you, that we have every reason to uh, consider what your word says. Lord, we confess that uh, we, we don't deserve that you should speak to us, and yet you do. And Father, we pray that you would help us to better understand what you have said, that you would help us to receive it in faith and to uh, think through these things, that we would marvel at the, the glorious grace that you have shown us in Christ Jesus. And in Jesus' name we pray, amen. So this morning we're going to be going through chapter 7 of the Second London Baptist Confession of Faith. We're going to do the whole thing, believe it or not. Uh, this chapter is titled, Of God's Covenant, of God's Covenant. So we're looking at uh, different aspects of God's covenant with uh, man and uh, covenant uh, within God, the, the triune God. Um, this is just going to be sort of a flyover on these things. Uh, Pastor Brennan recently taught in, in great detail on these things at Sunday night uh, regarding covenant theology, uh, how the different covenants in Scripture relate to one another, um, what covenant is uh, specifically and how that plays out in Scripture. So if you haven't listened to that yet, I would highly encourage that you check that out. It's all on, uh, on, online. And so, uh, but just for today, given our time, we're going to do a flyover of these things. So the first question, if we're talking about God's covenant, it's important that we understand what that word means. All right, it's not uh, a word that we typically use uh, with the exception, the important exception of marriage. We talk about uh, the covenant of marriage. But if, if we were to just give a very simple definition of covenant, uh, we could say that it is a, a formal agreement or a promise. Formal agreement or a promise. It has a much more serious nature than just a bare promise. Um, as we see, for instance, in, in marriage vows and the covenant of marriage. It's not just that uh, you're promising to, to love each other, till death do your part, but, but there's a seriousness about it. Um, and so a covenant, again, a formal agreement or promise. These covenants, a, a covenant can either be peer-to-peer. So marriage would be an example of that, where this person agrees to do such and such things in marriage, and this person agrees to do such and such things in marriage, and if uh, there's a failure to uphold uh, their end of the covenant, that there's actually consequences to that. Uh, we see in the Bible examples of, of these sorts of covenants. Uh, one example that comes to mind is, uh, if you remember when Jacob goes to Laban, and he works for Laban for a long time, and he leaves, finally gets out of uh, Laban and is, is going back to the land of Canaan, they, they set up this, this sort of thing and make a covenant with one another. And they say, uh, I'm not going to pass this if you don't pass this. Right? They're making a covenant. That's an example of a, a peer-to-peer sort of covenant. Another type of covenant that we see, and, and this is um, more important to what we're going to be talking about today, is, is the idea of a sovereign Uh, making a covenant with, um, what would you call them? What's the opposite of a sovereign? 
non-sovereign, thank you. <laughs> We're going to take that definition there. <laughs> Subject, thank you, that was the word I was looking for. Well, we're going to keep this, because that was, that was a timely thing, Starla. Subject. <laughs> Sovereign and, and its subject. So uh, an example of this might be a king uh, makes a covenant with its, his subjects, and he says, uh, these are the things I'm imposing on you. Uh, these are the things that I require of you as my subjects, and if you don't do these things, these are the consequences. Right? It's, it's something that's actually imposed upon the subject. It's not uh, something that, that requires a sort of agreement from, from either side because the sovereign has certain rights. Right? The sovereign has rights to impose stipulations on uh, the subject. And this is the type of covenant that we see with, with God. In terms of God's relationship to man, he relates to man through covenants. Where God as the creator, as the sovereign, as the king of king, uh, has the authority and the ability to impose certain stipulations on his uh, creation. He's able to make an agreement, so to speak. And so we're going to look primarily at that, though there is some uh, peer-to-peer covenant that, that we will look at as well. The three major covenants, uh, or three overarching covenants that we see in Scripture that we're going to be talking about today are the uh, covenant of works, the uh, covenant of redemption, And the covenant <coughs> of grace. Now, if you were to do a word search in your Bible for the term covenant of grace, covenant of works, covenant of redemption, you're not going to find it. Okay? The, the terms itself, the words that we use, really, and people use different ones, and they, they don't really matter. They're just helpful shorthand. What's really important is the things that these terms represent. Are they, are they biblical? Another example of that is if you were to do a word search for the word Trinity, you would not find it anywhere in Scripture, right? But it's a very helpful word to describe things that we do see uh, in Scripture, okay? And so these are sort of the overarching uh, covenants. Um, the covenant of works is between God Uh, and Adam, along with all of his descendants, all those he represents. We're going to look at these more in detail. I just thought it would be helpful to kind of lay it all out before we dive in. Uh, What's required of Adam and his descendants is uh, perfect obedience, continual obedience, personal obedience to God. And the reward that God lays out to Adam and his descendants, if they obey, they will inherit eternal life. If they disobey, the consequences is that they will inherit eternal death. Right? So that's the covenant of works. The covenant of grace, uh, we might say, is a covenant between God and 
the second Adam, last Adam, Christ, and all those he represents, which we would uh, use the word elect, Christ and the elect. In this covenant, uh, Christ uh, comes as the second Adam, and he actually obeys in place of those who are his. So Adam, what was required of him in the covenant of works was obedience. Christ, what's required of him is obedience. The difference is Christ actually obeys perfectly. And as the representative, uh, as the representative, the elect, all those who are in Christ, get that reward that he earned. They get eternal life because Christ obeyed. And so... Um, it, it has works in it, but Christ is the one doing the work. And we get the reward for it, which is why it's of grace. What's required in this uh, covenant of works for those uh, in Christ is faith. Right? In order to be represented by Christ instead of Adam, uh, we are to exercise faith in what Christ has done. And in doing so, that transfers us out of Adam uh, into union with Christ and all that he's earned. And so if, if you think about it, this, this actually is at the heart of the gospel, how we are saved. We're saved by what Christ has done and our union with him under this uh, covenant, this agreement. Okay. The last covenant is called the covenant of redemption. It's a covenant uh, within the Trinity. So we would say that this is more of a peer-to-peer -peer covenant, though that's kind of hard because it's also one God, right? And each person in the Trinity agrees to do something to accomplish the salvation of God's people. The Father ordains the salvation of his people. The Father sends the Son. The Son, not the Father, the Son comes down and, and uh, takes on flesh he lives in our place and dies in our place. That's what the Son agrees to do. And the Spirit uh, agrees to apply that work that Christ has accomplished uh, to his people, to work in them, uh, to uh, cause them to be born again, to work in them faith in Christ. And so again, this, this is at the heart of our salvation is how we're saved. It's actually work not just of Jesus. It's a work of the triune God accomplishing these things for us. Okay, that's just a quick overview. Again, if you haven't listened, um, listened to the, the, the series of uh, teachings that Brennan did on covenant theology, but uh, that's, this is what we're going to be looking at, these three overarching covenants. Uh, now within it, uh, there's a relationship between the Abrahamic covenant and the Davidic covenant and all those that relate to these things. We're not going to get into that uh, today, though. So the first paragraph, now that I have probably overwhelmed some, let's dive into it a little bit more, and hopefully it all will make sense. The distance between God and the creature is so great that although reasonable creatures do owe obedience to him as their creator, yet they could never have attained the reward of life but by some voluntary condescension on God's part which he has been pleased to express by way of covenant. And so first, what we see here in this paragraph 
is that obedience is actually owed to the Creator. Our obedience to God does not necessitate Him giving us anything. So the first thing that we, we want to realize is that by, by virtue of us being God's creation, we actually owe Him obedience. It's, it's what's due to Him. It's, it's what is right. We see some passages concerning this. Luke 17, verse 10. So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. And so if we were to obey God perfectly, we don't actually deserve anything from God for that obedience. It's, it's actually our duty. It's what we owe him. It's what we should do. Job 35, verses 7 through 8. If you are righteous, what do you give to him? Or what does he receive from your hand? Your wickedness concerns a man like yourself, and your righteousness a son of man. In other words, this is uh, one of Job's friends talking to him, and so often he's actually right about something here. In other words, if, if you're righteous, if you do the right thing, what do you give to God? You don't actually give him anything. You don't add anything to him. You don't give him something that he didn't have. Likewise, if, if you disobey God, if, if you're wicked, if you're evil, you don't actually take away something from God. The, our wickedness and righteousness concerns ourself. It, has, it affects us. It doesn't change God. It doesn't add something to him. And so uh, God does not uh, receive a gift from our obedience. He actually receives what is owed to him in our obedience. How does that connect to uh, covenants? Well, in the garden here, we want to note, in the confession notes, that God did not have to make any sort of covenant with Adam. God did not have to uh, uh, place in front of Adam the reward of eternal life for obedience. That's actually a gracious thing that God does. He, he condescends, he stoops down to Adam's level and he, he speaks to Adam and he says, if you, if you do this, you will die. And the implication is, if, if you obey, you will live and, and you'll, you'll in, uh, uh, gain this reward. But that reward is all of grace, right? Because Adam and his descendants actually owe God obedience. He doesn't have to give them anything for obeying him. And so this is uh, a gracious thing that God does, though it is de dependent on Adam's works. It is a gracious thing that God stoops down and, and, and does this thing. And if Adam obeyed and, and he earned the, the reward of eternal life, even though he's earning it, it's, it's actually a gift. It's still a gracious thing that God uh, would have given him. And so that's the point that paragraph one is trying to make, the graciousness of God um, making these arrangements with men, making promises to men. The second paragraph, if we continue on, moreover, man having brought himself under the curse of the law by his fall, it pleased the Lord to make a covenant of grace, where he, wherein he freely offers unto sinners life and salvation by Jesus Christ requiring of them faith in him that they may be saved and promising to give unto all those that are ordained unto eternal life his Holy Spirit to make them willing and able 
to believe. Uh, to believe. So the first thing that it notes in there is, one, th that we, as humanity, us in Adam, Adam being the best of us, uh, failed the covenant of works. Right? Adam did not uh, continue in obedience to God. He did not earn eternal life for his descendants or for himself. He, he failed. And so that places him and, and all of his descendants under the curse, uh, the curse of, of death, of separation from God. Genesis 2.16 through 17, God makes this clear that this is what will happen. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Right? That's the conditions. If, if you disobey, you will bring about death. And we know it's not just physical death. Right? It's a spiritual death. It's an eternal death. And, and death is not just... Um, the worst aspect of death is not uh, our separation, ultimately, of our, of our spirit from our body. The worst aspect of, of death is we're separated from the goodness and, and, and the, the, the beauty of God. And that's the sort of death that sin brings into the world. And so, uh, Galatians 3.10, another verse there, For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. In other words, if we're trying to earn God's favor through obedience, we're under the curse still. We, we can't do it. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Because the obedience that's required is a perfect obedience. And so none of us uh, uh, do that. And so we are all under the curse uh, in Adam. Romans 3 20 and 21, for by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Again, we can't, uh, we can't try to work this covenant to earn, our, uh, earn favor with God. This just shows us that we don't obey, that we don't measure up, that we're under the curse. And so, as a side note, I, I think there's actually a part of us that all recognizes the reality of this. Why, why are so many religions based upon trying to work, trying to obey something to earn God's favor? I think, this is my opinion, uh, so just take it with a grain of salt. I think it's because there's a certain understanding that we all have of this. But what we need to understand is none of us can actually accomplish this uh, because we are all uh, under the curse of the law, none of us can obey the law, though it is good. None of us can merit God's favor through trying to obey him because we all uh, fail. And so because of that, uh, God in his grace establishes uh, what is known as the covenant of grace. And in the covenant of grace, basically what happens is that God stands in our place and earns eternal life for us. He obeys in our place and, and dies bearing the curse in our place. And, and the thing that is required in that, the condition, is faith in Christ. By faith in Christ, we get the rewards that God has earned uh, for us. And we see that in Romans 8, uh, verses 3 through 4. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. In other words, the, the law 
is not the problem, it's, it's us, right? Because of our sinfulness, we cannot accomplish the law, and the law is not able to uh, bring us to God because of our own sinful flesh, and so God does what the law could not do. God saves us because the law could not save us, and how does he do this? By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He condemns sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. You see the, the language there that shows that God does the thing for us? God is the one that accomplishes the salvation. God the Father is the one that sends the Son. The Son is the one who um, uh, takes the condemnation of sin for us. The Son is the one that meets the righteous requirement of the law so that it will be fulfilled in us. And so God is accomplishing in the covenant of grace what uh, Adam failed to do and what we continually fail to do in the covenant of works. Mark sixteen fifteen through 16. And he said to them, this is Jesus speaking to the disciples, Go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. We see there that it's conditional upon belief, upon faith, in order for us to have what Christ earned. In John 3.16, verse we all know, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. In that verse, you have so much. You have uh, the God, that God is the one who accomplishes it. God the Father loves the world so much that he sends the Son. The Son comes into the world. We have the condition. It's, it's conditioned upon faith, whoever believes in the Son. And we have the reward that those who believe should have eternal life. So we see there God accomplishing what Adam could not, what we could not. Furthermore, see that God provides a spirit to make those ordained unto eternal life willing and able to believe. That, that God, even the condition of faith, that we must actually believe in Christ, that that is actually a work of God too. So salvation is a work of God from beginning to end. That God doesn't just send the Son but he sends the Spirit to work in us to be willing and able to believe. Ezekiel 36, uh, 26 and 27. This is a prophecy here. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put with, uh, within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my ways uh, Sorry, I'm missing a word there. Walk in my ways and statutes and be careful to obey my rules. So, so what do we have there? We have the Spirit's work, right? What does the Spirit do in all this? He, he, he comes in us and he removes this heart of stone. This heart of stone that's unresponsive to God. That doesn't respond rightly to God. That actually hates God. He removes that heart of stone and he puts in a heart of flesh that will respond rightly to God. And, and more than that, 
The Spirit is the one who works in us to cause us to walk in God's ways. The Spirit is the one who works in us to be careful to obey God's rules. And so when the gospel uh, proclamation is sent out and, and, and we say to people, you must believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. You must believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. What is the difference between the one who, who believes on the Lord Jesus Christ and the one who doesn't? It's the work of the Spirit. The Spirit takes out that heart of stone, puts in a heart of flesh, and enables us to respond rightly to that command to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we have the work of the Spirit there. John uh, 6, 44, 45, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. And so, again, what, what's the difference between the person who actually comes to Christ and the person who doesn't? God's grace, the Father, right? It's, it's uh, no one can come to Christ unless the Father draws him to Christ. Well, does God, the Father, draw everybody equally? Well, it says that all those who the Father draws will be raised up on the last day. And all those that the Father draws will come to Christ. And so again, it's a work of grace from beginning to end. You know, why, why is it that we have believed on Christ? It's a work of the Father, it's a work of the Spirit, and it's a work of the Son from beginning to end. Ephesians 2.8 summarizes this. For by grace you have been saved through faith. So again, it's, it's God's grace that we're saved. It's through faith. But then it goes on, and this is not your own doing. What's well, not our own doing? The, the whole package is not our own doing. The, the, the salvation and, and even the faith aspect of it, it is the gift of God. So God is the one, again, who accomplishes our salvation from beginning to end. Psalm 110, verse 3, this is a, a, a messianic psalm, a, a clearly messianic psalm. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power. In holy garments, from the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. So on the day of God's power, his people will offer themselves freely. I think, I think it's important that, that we understand uh, uh, two things here. One, um, on one side, any time that someone is saved, any time that someone puts their faith in God, it is completely the work of God from beginning to end. At the same time, we need to uphold that we actually chose to put our faith in God. It was a real choice that you and I made that um, we, we saw our sin, we saw our great need for Christ, and we heard uh, the message of Christ, and we chose to put our faith in Christ as our only hope. It was a real choice. No one twisted our arm to do it. God didn't uh, uh, coerce each of us to do it. God didn't program us as a robot to do it. God works in such a way, and we, we've seen this in other places, God works in such a way that he is... Uh, sovereign even over the free choices of men. 
And if do any of you comprehend that? No, no I don't either. I don't either. In the same way, I don't comprehend, I understand, I don't comprehend how God is uh, three persons in one God. I don't comprehend, I understand, I don't comprehend how Jesus is one person, both fully God and fully man, 100% of both in one person. I understand that. I see that Scripture teaches it, but I don't understand it completely. I don't understand how that all works together. And, and so the same, same, same is true with this. I, we don't c- completely comprehend, but we can understand enough of Scripture to see that it teaches both. And so, on one hand, we uphold the complete sovereignty of God and salvation, that it's a work of grace from beginning to end, that, that the difference between the believer and the unbeliever is God's grace. And on, on the other side, we also uphold that it was a real choice. And, and we, we, we proclaim the gospel like it's a real choice. That we approach sinners with, with this gospel and we ig- encourage them, we exhort them to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And if they don't, they, they have a responsibility. That they actually have uh, chosen a real choice to um, really spit on what Christ has done for them. And so we uphold both because the Bible teaches both. And again, I've said it before, I think where, why it's hard for us to understand is because we're dealing with infinite sovereignty. Infinite sovereignty, not just the sovereignty that programs a robot, not just the sovereignty that coerces, forces someone to do something. This is a sovereignty that actually can work um, through the free choices of, of men. And so we, we uphold that. And if we don't uphold that, we lose. Uh, we diminish the grace of God. We diminish the sovereignty of God. We diminish our, any hope for the, our, our um, ability to be saved. We diminish any hope that uh, anybody could be saved. And so we uphold the sovereignty of God, and we also uphold the responsibility and the free choice of men. And that's what... Uh, what the confession does. Moving on, uh, chapter 7, paragraph 3, this covenant, the covenant of grace, that God will accomplish our salvation for us from beginning to end, this covenant is revealed in the gospel. First of all, to Adam in the promise of salvation by the seed of the woman, and afterwards by farther steps until the full discovery thereof was completed in the New Testament. And it is founded in that eternal covenant transaction that was between the Father and the Son. Someone, can I hire a proofreader? (laughs) And the Son about the redemption of the elect. And it is alone by the grace of the covenant that all the posterity of fallen Adam that ever were saved did obtain life and blessed immortality, man being now utterly incapable of acceptance with God upon those terms on which Adam stood in his state of innocency. I know that's a mouthful, but let's, let's break that down. First of all, we see that the covenant of grace was first revealed to Adam. And it uh, uh, mentions uh, the promise of salvation by the seed of the woman we mention this uh, verse very often because this is where the gospel is first pronounced. Uh, Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. 
He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. This is a, a, a seed form of the gospel, right? And, and it, it, it's enough that Adam and Eve and uh, those who heard it after them could be saved if they put their faith in the seed of the woman who would come. That this seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent, that this seed of the woman would crush the power of sin and death and the curse that came into this world. They're, they're putting their faith in this uh, future one to come, and that was enough to save them, but uh, God doesn't just stop there. That's not all that God reveals about what will happen, right? He, he, he continues on, and we read through the Old Testament, and, and what is the Old Testament? It's unfolding this promise that God gives in the garden. And so we get to Abraham, the Abrahamic covenant, and God promises that um, uh, that he would have offspring as, as numerous as of the stars in the sky, that in him all the nations shall be blessed. And we've looked at this before. What is happening? The gospel is being uh, shown more fully. What this seed of the woman will do is being shown more uh, fully. And you, you move on and, and you see the sacrificial system. What's going on there? God is showing more and more the truth of the gospel, that sin requires a sacrifice, that a life must be given, a substitute must be given in place of us for our sins. This is uh, uh, clearly seen in, in the Day of Atonement uh, with the different sacrifices there. And, and who, who's offering up this sacrifice? It's a priest. So we need a priest who's offering up this sacrifice to God for man. And it must be an unblemished sacrifice. Okay, again, the gospel... This covenant of grace, what God will accomplish for us, is being shown more clearly. And you get to uh, the Davidic covenant. And the promises made to David of this king who will sit on uh, his throne forever. And we have, again, a, a greater anticipation, a greater picture of what God will do in saving sinners. That a king will come who will actually vanquish his enemies, who will uh, crush the head of the serpent, going back to Genesis 3. And so it develops over time, but the full discovery of it, the full revelation of the covenant of grace doesn't come till the New Testament. That's when we see the full picture. All the while, we've just been getting puzzle pieces, and we could kind of make out a, a picture, and we have an idea of what's coming, and, and, and enough to put our faith in and to be saved. And, but, but when the new covenant comes, when the New Testament is completed, when Christ comes, we have the full picture of what it all means of what God will do to save sinners. We have that passage in Hebrews 1, where we see the fullness of God's revelation come in Christ. Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. So God is revealing things, and many times, in many ways, through uh, the work of the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son. The full revelation has come now that Christ has come whom he appointed the heir of all th things, through whom he also created the world. And so, now with the New Testament, we can, I hope you can see, we have a much better idea of what Christ, or what God accomplishes in the covenant of works. That Christ comes as that substitute to live for us, to die for us. That Christ uh, is actually uh, the God-man who does this. That 
All of the promises of God in the Old Testament find their yes and amen in Jesus Christ. And so we have the fuller picture in the New Testament. The paragraph also mentions that the covenant of grace is founded upon the covenant of redemption. What does that mean? What that means is this is just a byproduct of what our triune God decided to do before creation. That before he created anything, God had determined to save sinners for himself, and he determined how he was going to save sinners. That the Father would uh, appoint and draw uh, people to Christ. He would appoint those whom he would save. The Father would send the Son. The Son would come into the world and, and bear uh, our flesh and live and die in our place and raise from the grave and ascend on high and intercede for us. And the Spirit would uh, apply that work that Christ has accomplished to his people. And so this happens because God determined it. The triune God determined it uh, before the creation of the world. Again, this is gospel. This is the very heart of the gospel. This is how we're saved. Is these things playing out? What, what's the biblical support for this covenant of redemption? Is it just uh, some fancy words that some fancy people cooked up in some fancy places? Is there any biblical support for it? Turn to, turn to Titus, uh, well, it's in your notes. Titus chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. Do we see evidence in Scripture of a covenant within the triune God? Paul a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness, in hope of eternal life, listen to this, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. So this, this salvation that God accomplishes, he promises before the ages began. What's before the ages began? We're talking about before time, right? This is an eternity past. That God is making this promise before anything was created. So who's he making this promise to? Himself, Right? That the Father promises this, and the Son promises this, and the Spirit promises this, all within the one, the one Godhead. So we have this idea of an eternal promise within the Trinity before time began. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 8-9. through 9. Therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. So Paul is saying that God has saved us. He's called us to a holy calling. What, why does that happen? Why are we saved? Why has God called us to this holy calling? Is it because of something that we did or something that, uh, how fantastic we are? He says, no, not because of works. What's the reason for it? Why are some people saved and some people called to this holy calling? 
because of God's own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus when? When did he give us this purpose? When did God already show this grace? Before the ages began. That God determines this before time within uh, himself. There's other evidences of um, this sort of triune agreement or triune uh, covenant accomplishing our salvation. Jesus uh, frequently mentions the work that the Father gave him to do. That's why he's come. He's going to accomplish all that the Father has told him to do. So the Father sends the Son. The Son accomplishes work that he's been given to do, and there's actually a reward for his work that is given to him. Uh, the, the blessing of many offspring, those who are saved. And so, um, again, if, if you want more detail on that, I would, I would listen to the Sunday night service, but we see that there is this uh, triune agreement to save sinners, and each member would do its own part. We see the most evidence for this is between the Father and the Son. Um, but there are also uh, hints of it with, with the Spirit, because the Spirit obviously has a work to do in our salvation as well. Okay? So the covenant of grace is founded upon what God has determined uh, before time began. And then lastly, people are only saved through the covenant of grace. That this is the only way that anybody who has ever been saved is saved is through God accomplishing their salvation beginning to end. Nobody has ever been saved by this. It's impossible. And so, um, everybody who has been saved has been saved through the covenant of grace, and that means past, present, and future. Uh, I tend to think that Adam and Eve were saved because you have that uh, picture of uh, God slaying the animals and clothing them with these animal skins, with, which I think is a picture of God clothing them with righteousness. And, and he does this after uh, he proclaims that uh, a promise of the seed of the woman. And so how were, if... I think they were. If Adam and Eve were saved, how were they saved? It was through faith in the one to come, and they get the reward of what Christ would do. Um, uh, David, he clearly has an understanding that the only way that he could be saved from his sin is if God forgives him. Uh, he, would under, he would have known this promise given in the garden. David, how was he saved? Through his faith in what God would do to save him. His faith in this uh, messianic figure to come. And so, all throughout history, Old Testament, New Testament, anybody who's ever been saved is only through the covenant of grace. And so, we need to be careful. You know, we read about the sacrificial system. The sacrificial system did not save sinners. People were not saved only because they sacrificed a lamb. That kept them within the nation of Israel. The only way that they could be saved is by putting their faith in the lamb of God who would come. The Messiah, the one that they didn't know all about, but they knew enough about uh, to be saved. Hebrews 11, uh, 6 and verse 13 and without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists 
and that he rewards those who seek him. We see there that the condition of faith is, is always what was required. If someone offered up an animal sacrifice without faith, that would not be pleasing to God. They must have faith. These all died in faith. This is referring to the, the hall of faith, where it talks about Abraham and Moses and, and all the rest. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar. In other words, did Abraham fully get the, did he fully see the promise given to him by God? He saw the, a bit of it. He saw, he saw Isaac, but he didn't see, um, he didn't see his descendants as numerous as the stars, right? He didn't see all of it. He didn't see uh, all of it, but he died in faith. He didn't receive all of it at that time, but he saw it and greeted it from afar. And, and he has it and will have it at the resurrection of the dead. Romans 4, 1 through 3. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. How is Abraham saved? Same way that, that we're saved. Faith in the promises of God. Abraham was not saved because he was circumcised. Abraham was saved because he believed in the promises of God, of what God would accomplish for him. Acts 4.12 And there is salvation in no one else, no one else but Jesus. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved even for people in the Old Testament. They could only be saved through Christ. They didn't know his specific name, Jesus, but they knew enough about uh, what he would do and the necessity of him. And then John 8, 56, Your father Abraham rejoiced that he should see my day. So Abraham has this understanding of of this is Jesus' day. He, he, he sees enough. He, he saw it and was glad. He, we, we need to give Abraham more credit that he actually understood to some degree that Jesus was coming. And he saw it from afar and he rejoiced about it. He was glad that the Messiah would come. And so everybody uh, who has been saved or will be saved, it is, it is only through God accomplishing their salvation through the person and work of Christ, through the application of it by the Holy Spirit, all according to um, the plan and purpose of God the Father. And, um, and it's, it's, it's glorious. I'm glad, quite frankly, I'm glad that nobody is saved according to this. Because if someone was saved according to this, God would not get the glory that he deserves. If people were saved according to this, it would diminish our ability to see and appreciate the, the wonderful grace of God in him accomplishing uh, what we could not and would not. And so let's go ahead and, and pray. Uh, I just want everybody to note this. I'm ending six minutes early which may or may not make up a little bit for the fact that I think I continually end five or ten minutes late. 
Do we agree on that? Okay. <laughs> Let's pray. Father, we thank you for um, the fact that you stoop down and you make these covenants with us. You make these wonderful promises that you have promised to accomplish our salvation from beginning to end, and you do so. And all you require of us is, is simple faith in Christ, and, and even that is your work in us. Lord, you deserve all the glory and honor and praise for our salvation. Father, help us to be confident in your ability to save sinners. Help us to boldly proclaim the gospel to those around us, to our children, to our friends, to our neighbors, to strangers, Lord, trusting that you use this simple proclamation to uh, work in sinners, to bring about faith in Christ, to transfer sinners from the domain of darkness into your marvelous kingdom of light. Lord, we thank you. We thank you that for all of eternity we will be trophies of your grace, that you have given us this grand purpose, that you are showing off how gracious you are in our salvation. Lord, that is far better than to be uh, ones who show the depth and, and the beauty of your justice. Lord, that our very existence is, is meant to show just how gracious you are, that, that you lavish upon us all the, these things that we don't deserve, that we couldn't earn, that you earned for us. Help us to be those who are thankful for this. Help us to be thankful, not, not grumblers at heart, but to be content with the magnificent grace that you have shown us and will continue to show us for all of eternity. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, guys.